Well, good morning. Good to see all of you here today. If you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, I'm going to ask you to turn right now to the book of John, chapter 16, and we're going to be starting in verse 8 here in just a minute, okay? So John, chapter 16, verse 8. And today, we're going to go pretty deep with some ideas, but in a way that's very, very, very simple to understand if you're just listening and, and keep up, okay? Uh, years ago, Charles Schultz, who writes the Peanuts uh, comic strip, he had a sad but true uh, little comic strip one day where Lucy is talking to her brother Linus. And she says to Linus, you know, Linus, I think I would have been a good evangelist. He says, why do you say that? She says, well, you know that kid who sits behind me in, in class? I convinced him that my religion is better than his. And Linus says, really? How did you do that? She says, I hit him with my lunchbox. Sadly, when you look at the history of mankind, that a lot of times has been the approach, right? We'll use violence, we'll use force, we'll use coercion, we will use intimidation to bring people to our understanding of faith. But the truth is, friends, that is not the way of the Holy Spirit. Violence cannot cure spiritual blindness. So we're in this series now called The Gift. And The Gift is all about the person and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And we're looking to Jesus to inform us, to instruct us, to guide us in what the Spirit wants to do in our lives. And the reason we're looking to Jesus is because nobody came more full of the Spirit Nobody was led more by the Spirit. Nobody evidenced the power of the Spirit or was anointed more under the Spirit than Jesus himself. So we're going to let the Master school us on what it is he wants us to know about the Holy Spirit. And one of the things you need to understand today that we need to really get clear from the get-go is that the Holy Spirit wasn't just sent for the benefit of the church. Just like Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son, it's because God loved the world that he sent the Holy Spirit to do something, not just in the church, but to do something in the world through the church. And we're going to see today what that is. So in John chapter 16, verse 8, um, the part I'm going to read to you right now comes from the message version of the Bible. And here in just a minute, we're going to read the NIV version of this exact same text. But I, I really like how the message encapsulates this. Here's what Jesus says, John 16, 8. He says, when he comes, and he's talking about the promised Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, he'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin righteousness, and judgment. How many of you with raised hand would agree this morning that our world has a really messed up view of sin, righteousness, and judgment? All right? And here's what Jesus says. In order for the world to come out of that blindness and come into the light and to clearly see, it's going to take a true act of God Almighty himself. We see evidence of this what well, we talked about last week when Peter preaches the very first gospel-centered message on the day of Pentecost. Remember what happened that day? The Holy Spirit is released. He descends upon the apostles. They're full of the Spirit. And, and Peter, this untrained, unschooled fisherman, 
begins to preach. And 3,000 people, it says, were cut to the heart through what Peter said. 3,000 people were convicted deeply by Peter's words. 3,000 people eventually responded to their conviction by being baptized. Now let me ask you this. Did that happen because of Peter's eloquence and his great oratory skills? Or did it happen because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that was made manifest at that point in time? And we know the answer, don't we? It wasn't Peter. It was the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it says there that the people came under great conviction. And let me tell you what I've been praying for today, folks. I've been praying for nothing less. I've been praying that today, that there are those who are here today who will fall under great conviction. Not because of the words or the eloquence of some sinful, fallen, redeemed creature named Solomon, but because of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. Because I'm persuaded to believe that there are those who are listening to me right now, here this morning, who the Holy Spirit is trying to call you, to compel you, to expose to you your great need for Jesus as your Savior. And I believe where the Holy Spirit begins in convicting the world is by clarifying the definition of sin. So listen to me if you would. The same verse in John 16, 8, read in the NIV version. And we go into verse 9 as well because we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at sin, we're going to look at righteousness, and we're going to look at judgment. These three things that Jesus talks about. Here's what he says here. He says, when he comes, again, the Holy Spirit... He will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Listen to this. About sin. So Jesus is narrowing in. He's honing in on one of these elements. About sin because people do not believe in me. So the first thing the Holy Spirit's going to do globally is he's going to shed light on the fact that sin at its core is one thing. Unbelief. That's what it is at its core. And I want you to notice here that Jesus doesn't say the Holy Spirit is going to prove the world to be wrong about their sins, plural, but about their sin, singular. Here's why. Because sin, at its root, always has one prevalent sin. And that is the rejection of Jesus. That is the one sin that is at the root of every other sin is the rejection of Jesus. So I'm going to say something here that's going to kind of challenge some of your orthodoxy and what you've maybe been taught. People are not lost because they are sinners. See, I can go to several places in Scripture that give us these big old lists of sins that people commit that lead to people being lost. But here's the crazy thing. When I look at that list of sins whereby people are lost, here's what I realize. There are a number of people who are going to heaven who did the exact same things on this list. So ultimately, you're not lost because you are a sinner. You know why you're lost? Because you've rejected the one Savior who can save you from your sins. 
That's why people are lost, because of their unbelief about Jesus. It'd be just like you going to the doctor. The doctor's saying, sorry, I've got this diagnosis for you. It's terminal. It's fatal. But here's the medicine. If you take the medicine, you're going to be cured. You're going to be fine. You're going to be well. You say, "Mm, no, thanks. I'll take my chances. And you die. Truth be told, it was not the disease that ultimately killed you. It was your stubbornness or your pride or your refusal in some form or fashion to take the medicine that could have saved your life. And that's what Scripture attests. People are not lost because they are sinners. They're lost because they reject the one who can save them from their sins. And that doesn't originate with me. You know who said that? Want to take a guess? Jesus. Here's what he said. John 8, 24. I told you, Jesus said, that you would die in your sins. If you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Sin. So Jesus says, you've got a very, very terminal spiritual condition. Doesn't have to be that way, because if you look to me, I can save you, right? So there we've got this definition of sin, that at its core is really unbelief. And you know what? So many people are in darkness about this. They don't understand that the great sin of life is to reject, to rebuff, to say no to, to turn their back on, Jesus. And as a result, we've got a world that's just chock full of opinions about Jesus. I mean, they accept him at some form or fashion or some sort of level, and they say all sorts of nice things about him. They just don't say about him what he said about himself. They say that he was a great moral example, that he was a wonderful teacher, that he was a compassionate humanitarian. But again, they don't say about Jesus what he said about himself, being that I am the Son of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. And here's the problem human beings get into. Because they don't see Jesus as the answer to the sin problem, they try to fix their own sin problem and become experts at self-justification. Let me give you a case in point of this. Got a picture for you here. Those of you who are maybe a little more politically savvy or kind of in the loop, you might recognize who this is. You might recognize this guy on the screen. Okay. Who is it? Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York City. Now, a lot of people didn't like Michael Bloomberg because of a lot of the things that he was against and a lot of the legislation he passed against these certain things. He declared war against obesity, against guns, against smoking, okay? And that's okay to have policies and legislations against certain things. The only problem is Michael Bloomberg is actually quoted as saying that because of his policies against these things, he thinks he's a shoe-in for heaven, all right? Listen to what he says when he's pointing to his policies about gun safety, obesity, and smoking. He says, I am telling you, if there is a God... When I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I am headed straight in. I have earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Isn't that scary? I mean, you can't make this stuff up, right? But here is a man who is so blinded to his own need that he can't see his great sin because he is living in darkness. And here's what I would say to Michael Bloomberg 
in any other human being that's become an expert at self-justification, that it's a matter of the scales, just the good outweighing the bad. But if you're okay, and I'm okay, then somebody please tell me, why did Jesus have to die? Because the truth of the matter is, we are not simply barely broken and just in need of a good life coach. The testimony of Scripture is this. You and I are fatally flawed, and we need a Savior. And I think this is what Satan is trying to keep the church ignorant of. So that we will not partner with the Holy Spirit. And so that the world will stay ignorant of the ministry of Jesus Christ. So we need help. We need help with sharing with the world who Jesus is and why people so much need him. And Jesus says, good news. Help is on the way. I am sending the helper, the advocate, the spirit, and he will help you as you are my witnesses. So look at John 16, verse 9. Listen to what it says here. Again, this is from the message version. He says here, he'll show them that their refusal to believe in me is their basic sin. Now let me say something to you, okay? Those of you who are listening today, there are those of you in this room who are listening to me right now. Or maybe there are those of you who are listening to me in your car right now because somebody bought you a CD or you're listening online because you downloaded the sermon from today. And your condition before God Almighty can be described in one way. You're lost. You're lost because you have rejected, you've rebuffed, you've turned your back on the one who can save you from your sin. And consequently, you are going to spend eternity apart from God. And what the Holy Spirit is trying to talk to you about today, he's trying to convince you of the desperate need that you have for Jesus and your situation apart from him. But it's not just sin that the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world about or prove the world wrong about. Jesus goes further. He says, yeah, the world's going to get schooled in what the heart of sin really is, and it's all about unbelief in me. And the world's going to learn about righteousness and that only Jesus is righteous. Because I'll tell you what the Holy Spirit finds himself buffing up against each and every day. He finds him constantly self being opposed by people who believe in what we're going to call pseudo-righteousness. Kind of like Michael Bloomberg again. And I think we've all been there before. That in the backs of our minds, we think to ourselves, hey, you know what? Um, I'm righteous because of the comparison quotient. That I got friends or acquaintances or people in my life who I look at guys I went to college with, and man, when we were in that fraternity, they did some crazy far-out things, and they got into trouble and hurt a lot of people, and man, but I never did those things. I stayed clean as a whistle in college. Or we see people at work or people in our neighborhood, and they're doing things, engaging things, and we say, man, look at them, look at their life. I didn't do those things, so you know what? I'm doing pretty good. But then here's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes sheds light on Jesus and gives us a whole new standard of righteousness and what being good and holy and righteous really looks like. 
And the Holy Spirit says, now, how do you compare to that? See, pseudo-righteousness is based on one assessment, one belief, that God, in the end, when we stand before him, is going to judge me, he's going to grade me, he's going to say yes or no to me based on the curve of how I compare to other people. And man, as I look at some other people around me, I can feel pretty good about that. In fact, I might even set the curve, right? That's what some people think. Well, because it's March Madness, and we're in basketball season, let me give you a little analogy to kind of help blow your idea of the curve, okay? Some of you basketball fans might remember several years ago, there was a scandal involving the University of Georgia Bulldogs coach, uh, Jim Herrick. And he had on his staff, his coaching staff, his son, Jim Herrick Jr. And there was an academic discrepancy of this nature. See, Jim Herrick Jr. was teaching a class to some of the students. It was called Coaching Principles and Strategies of Basketball. And there were a number of the guys from the basketball team in this class, guys who needed a good grade to maintain their playability on the team. So listen, if you would, to some of these questions on a college level exam. Question number one. How many halves are there in a basketball game? Come on, Einstein. You got it, okay? Question number two. How many basketball goals are on a basketball court? Question number three. You ready for this one? You got to think. How many points is a three-point bucket worth? So there were these questions and loads of other easy-peasy questions. And guess what? Scandal was revealed. Judgment came, and the hammer was dropped. Two men, gone. The reason I tell you that is because I think a lot of people, under that same impression that when they stand before God, it's going to be a final just like that. That God's going to say, hey, Kevin, you ever kill anybody with an axe? No, no, you're good, right? Hey, Kevin, you ever been an international terrorist? No. Keith, you ever smuggled thousands of pounds of drugs or been involved in the sex traffic industry? Oh, oh man, easy peasy, right? None of those questions are what's going to be the question of the day, though. Here's the question that every person is going to be confronted with, and there's only one of two answers. Have you sinned? Let me tell you something, folks. You don't get to heaven regardless what the world says. We've got to remember whose influence the world is under, right? And he's doing everything to cloud their vision, their judgment, except to bring them to a knowledge of the truth. And the world says you get to heaven by sinning less than other people. Haven't we heard that over and over? It's like a broken record. You don't get to heaven by sinning less than other people. You get to heaven because you've been declared sinless by the judge. 
You don't get to heaven by sinning less than other people. You get to heaven because you've been declared sinless by the judge. And the good news that I have for you today, folks, is this. That not only is Jesus the standard of righteousness, he is the source. He's the one that we go to to become righteous. Here's how Paul said it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, God made him who had no sin. He was perfect. He was flawless. He was holy. He was obedient. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him... Not in our deeds, not in our works, not in our own moral uprightness, but that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's what I know. Can we get some emergency personnel in here? Hey, let's take a moment and pray, if we're okay. Father, we lift up uh, your child who just left this room um, with something physical going on with her, Lord. We pray that you'll give wisdom to those who are assessing her right now to determine what it is that she needs to get the most urgent care so that she can uh, be healed, Lord. Um, we trust in you, your love for her, and uh, your provision for her, Lord, and ask that you'll right now bring healing to her body. We ask that you deal with her tenderly, carefully, Lord, and we pray for healing to be uh, the ultimate end. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So let's get back to, to where we're at, all right? Jesus isn't just the standard of righteousness. He is the source of righteousness. And the enemy, again, wants every human being to be in the dark about this one truth simply for one reason. Because he wants your fate and my fate to be the same as his fate. Because here's what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit is going to prove the world to be wrong about sin. He's going to prove them to be wrong about righteousness. And in verse 11, he says, and about judgment. Because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So Jesus says the Holy Spirit's going to shed light on three things. That sin at its core is unbelief. That only Jesus is righteous. And that judgment is certain. 
Listen to what Jesus says in John 12, 31. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, meaning Satan, will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death that he was going to die. So the cross of Christ, where it was that Jesus took our condemnation, Jesus says it was at the cross where the enemy, the prince of darkness himself, was being condemned. And so for the last 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit has been wooing and been calling and reaching out to men and women globally, getting them to come to the cross of Jesus telling them to believe in Jesus, for pleading the righteousness of Jesus so that they won't endure the same fate, the same judgment, the same punishment as the prince of darkness will. That's been the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that judgment is coming. And listen, folks, this is serious business. I want to take you back to a time, a specific point in the Gospels, where Jesus under the testimony and the witness of the Holy Spirit, is doing amazing things. The Holy Spirit is shining the light on Jesus, telling the world, look at him. He's the one. And he's doing this through signs and through wonders. And one specific time, we find Jesus demonstrating authority over spiritual forces of darkness, and he's casting out demons. And the Holy Spirit is testifying to the world that the reason why he can do things like no one has ever done is because he's been unlike anyone who's ever come to this earth. He's the one. And yet somebody from the crowd, when they see Jesus exerting authority over demonic power, somebody from the crowd says this. You might remember this point. That the only way, Jesus, you're able to have authority over Satan is because, do you remember what they said? You are of Satan yourself. Now listen to me, folks. Jesus faced his fair share of critics and naysayers and skeptics. But when this accusation is launched against him, it is a showstopper. And he says, don't you dare cross that line. Because any sin can be forgiven except blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now let me assure you this morning, okay? Any sin that you repent of can be forgiven. Paul even said in his letters, I was a blasphemer and yet I experienced the grace of God. And we know that God used Paul as a tool of global evangelism unlike anybody else has ever been used. But, so what's Jesus saying here? Here's what Jesus is saying. That the Holy Spirit is pointing to and witnessing to the identity, the, de- the deity, and the sufficiency of Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's showing the world this is one unlike the rest of the world. This is God in the flesh. This is the Son of God. And Jesus is saying, when you turn your back on that, and when your heart grows cold to that, and you reject the witness and the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning my identity and my sufficiency, you have just rejected the only provision God has given you to be saved. That's what Jesus is saying in a nutshell. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is turning your back and simply rejecting the person 
and, and, and the character and the witness and the identity of Jesus based upon how the Holy Spirit testified to who he was. You have just turned your back on and rejected the only provision that God Almighty has given you to be saved. And Jesus says, don't go there. Don't reduce, reject, turn your back on the witness and the testimony of the Holy Spirit about who I am. In fact, listen to Jesus' words. I know you'll know the first part of these because we all know it by heart, but it's the second part where we often stop reading. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Listen, but whoever does not believe, whoever spurns, whoever turns their back, whoever rejects, stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Again, there's one hinge on which everything swings. Heaven, hell, darkness, light, blindness, sight. All hinges on one thing, Jesus. So here's my hope today. I hope that when you leave here today, that you don't just leave with more of an awareness of, but you leave with a greater appreciation of this ministry of the Holy Spirit that rarely gets talked about, this gift of conviction. Because once we are convicted that this is how the Holy Spirit works, you know what we're going to do? We're going to start opening up our mouths to the lost about God. Because Jesus said, I'm leaving you here for one reason. There's one reason we're not all in glory right now with Jesus. He said, you are going to be my what? Witnesses. You're going to testify. You're going to give evidence. You're going to witness to the things that I've done in your life. So listen to me, and this is a hard truth. So when you have a chance, or when I have a chance, with a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, a family member, to somehow guide them through conversation and point them to the person of Jesus, and we don't take advantage of that, and we don't do that. Listen to me. It's not because you lack confidence in your own adequacy. Ultimately, according to Jesus, the reason why you don't take the conversation in that direction is because in your heart of hearts, you lack confidence in the adequacy of the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit never said, it's your job and my job to convict. Our job is to witness and to provide a channel for the Holy Spirit to enter the situation and do what he does best. To prove people wrong about sin, wrong about righteousness, and wrong about judgment. And let me tell you something, folks. The simplest way you can do this, the, the easiest way, the most natural way you can do this, is simply inviting someone to come to church. Let me tell you something. Scripture attests to this, that when the saints of God are assembled and when together 
we laud and we praise and we celebrate Jesus and we lift his name high. And when we hear from his word and we're encouraged by his word and we celebrate his word and when we claim his promises and when we're walking as people of his word, scripture says that something happens in that environment where hearts start to be penetrated because light starts to penetrate the darkness. And my friend or my family member or my coworker or my neighbor who's in church with me, all of a sudden they begin to see that they have a need for a Savior. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, he says that when the saints of God are assembled and the Spirit of God is present among them, He says something amazing happens, that when an unbeliever comes in their midst, the unbeliever will declare, surely God is in this place. And do you know why they say that? Because the very sentence right before that says this, because the secrets of their heart will be laid bare. That in this environment, Holy Spirit has a way of getting in people and with a surgeon's precision lays them open and their hearts come open and it exposes their wrong view of sin, their wrong view of righteousness, their wrong view of judgment. And they say, surely God is in this place. So something powerful happens when you bring people who need Jesus into the assembly of the saints. So we have to start believing in the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit to open up hearts. And when we believe that, that's when we'll start opening up our mouths. So when we're convinced of the convicting nature of the Holy Spirit, we'll start talking to the lost more about God. And you know what else we'll start doing? We'll start talking to God more about the lost. When we understand that this is a spiritual battle that we're in, we will become passionate about praying for people who are far, far, far from Jesus. So let me say something that I need you to hear me on this morning. And please don't misunderstand me. Don't mishear me. That's why I need you to hear me loud and clear because I do not want to be misquoted on this. Don't go out of here saying that I said something that I did not say. We consider it a privilege here at the church to pray for anybody in this body who is physically impaired or sickness or has a disease or some sort of ailment that you seek recovery from. We're privileged to pray for you, and we consider it an honor to do so. And every Monday morning as a staff, we gather and we take these needs before the Lord because we believe in the healing power of prayer. But... My question to the church at large today is this. Why do we pray so much to keep sick saints from heaven and not as much keeping lost people from hell? Why is it when we get prayer requests, we don't see somebody's heart for their child or their neighbor, or their co-worker who's hell-bound. But if they got an upcoming surgery, we'll pray for them. I don't get it. And I've been guilty myself of praying for more flesh and bone issues more than I have spiritual issues and conditions of the heart. Because here's what I know. We all, we all have 
coworkers, friends, neighbors, family members who need Jesus. And I'm just going to ask you to start praying for them. I've shared with you stories before about the late English pastor, George Mueller. Let me tell you what George Mueller did as a young man. When he was a young man, he vowed that he would pray for five of his friends every day until these five individuals came to faith in Jesus Christ. And that was his prayer. Every day he took their name before the throne of God. God, God, please bring them to you. Five friends every day. After five years, one of his friends came to faith in Christ. After ten years, two of his other friends came to faith in Christ. The fourth friend, after 35 years of daily prayer and beckoning God on behalf of this friend. Fifth friend, after 52 years of consistent fervent prayer, he came to faith in Christ two weeks after George Mueller passed away. And I got news for you, folks. There isn't a one of us in this room that came to faith in Jesus because we are just so brilliant. There's not a one of us who avoided the darkness and deceptive nature of the enemy and overcame the blindness in our own lives because we are just so smart people and we out-schemed the schemer. Now, I believe in my heart of hearts, whether you realize it or not, there was somebody somewhere praying for you and the Holy Spirit illuminated you and brought you to a point where you understood where you were wrong about sin, you were wrong about righteousness, and you were wrong about judgment. And it just seems to me that it would be good to do for other people what somebody has already done for us. So here in just a moment, we're going to have our time of invitation. And my prayer is that there would just be throngs of people from this body who would take on the spirit of George Mueller today and you would come up front and you would boldly come before this congregation, you'd boldly come before God and you would just petition God on behalf of that son or daughter that's lost, that parent who you want to see come to Jesus, that neighbor who you love and you just want an opportunity, you want an openness. And by the way, do you know why I think we pray for physical things for people, sickness and disease and such more than we do for their spiritual nature? Here's why I think part of it is. Because when I pray for somebody to be healed spiritually, it's over to the doctors and to God to heal them because I'm not a healer, right? But when I pray for someone's spiritual well-being and for them to come to a knowledge and the faith in the Son of God, that's something that I can affect. And so if I'm willing to pray for it, I need to be willing to be used to that end. So I'm going to ask this morning that just we boldly that our hearts break today and that we say, Holy Spirit, use me as a tool, as a catalyst to be a witness to someone. The convicting's all up to you. You prove them wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. You just use me as a catalyst to be a witness about what you've done in my life. Or send somebody else as well. Whoever it is, Lord, I'm just going to pray for this person. Do you even have five people in your life that you can pray for in that way?
find people who are lost and without hope. I'm going to ask that at this time in the service that you just get up from where you are and you move and you be moved to make that prayer on their behalf. And for those of you who I addressed earlier, you came in here and you were listening. I'm persuaded that there's someone here today who the Holy Spirit is calling you to see your need for Jesus. And this is the time in the service when you can come forward, meet us in the back porch, and you can repent of your unbelief of Jesus. You can establish him and plead for him to be your standard of righteousness. And that way you can stand before a holy God and anticipate judgment because your judgment will have taken place on that cross 2,000 years ago. If that's you today, please don't leave this place without getting right with your creator. Won't you join me in a word of prayer right now? Father, thank you for the gift of the Spirit that convicts the world. And Lord, there's one reason why we are here as a church still, because you've left us here with a mission to be your witnesses. And Father, I pray that we will make ourselves available to engage in conversations that have eternal consequences at stake, that we will make ourselves as tools in your hand, that we will say as Isaiah did, hear my Lord, send me. We want Jesus to be lifted high. We want his glory to spread across this earth, Lord. And we know that you are most glorified when, when people who've been blinded by, by the evil one when light penetrates that darkness and someone living a lie starts to live in the truth. So, Father, I pray that our hearts might be burdened today and, and heavy for those people who are lost that we know and love. And we just pray, Lord, for your spirit to work through us that we might be a vessel through which they can find Jesus. So, Lord, thank you for the privilege of coming to you Thank you for your word that tells us why the Spirit is here, what the Spirit does, what the Spirit is wanting to do through us. And I pray, Lord, we make ourselves available to that end. We give you this now time, Lord, to move as you would in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.